Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and open it to James chapter 1. We will, for the next 17 weeks, be walking through the book of James. Um, And what can we say as an introductory, uh, a few introductory statements about the book of James? You know this to be a letter that's written with much practical application of theology. James is interested that believers like you and me live out our faith and put it into practice. He, he calls us to be, what, doers of the word and not hearers only. In this letter, we'll see James address issues like trials and faith and wisdom. Uh, our speech will be addressed, prayer, healing, all kinds of things. And James aims our hearts and exhorts us to draw near to God. Why? Because God gives grace to those who draw near to him. Living the Christian life can be really challenging. It can be hard. And so he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you because James, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James wants to see us walk our faith out day by day in the strength of the Holy Spirit and by his grace. Reading the book of Proverbs, uh, or excuse me, reading the book of James is kind of like reading the book of Proverbs. You'll hear exhortation after exhortation. You will hear uh, these exhortations laced with this sense of a command. Like there's, there's James writing with the, the heart of a pastor for people who are in the midst of trouble. And he, he cuts through the chase and just speaks clearly and straight to us. There are imperatives along the way. But as we read these, as we take these in, and I want to encourage you to start reading in the book of James. We're going to be here for 17 weeks. So my encouragement is to read through the book of James. Say the ne- over the next week, read through James chapter 1. So that when we arrive next week, we're going to look at a few more verses in James chapter 1. It will already be in your heart and in your mind. Um, some of you have just begun a new Bible reading year, and that's great. I don't want to take you away from that at all. But perhaps just adding some James to your reading would be helpful as we're going to be in this book for the next time. So let's begin by reading James. I'm going to start in verse 1, read through verse 4. And as I read uh, these words, I remind us all that these are the inspired, inerrant words of holy God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Holy Father, as we look into your word this morning, as we as we examine it and look at it from different angles, by your Holy Spirit would you come and enable us to see. Not only would you enable us to see, though, Lord, would you enable us to respond to the truth that's here. Lord, enable me to respond to the truth that's here. You've given us this life-giving word to change our hearts this morning. And our hearts all, everyone in this room... 
room. We, we all need our hearts to be changed as it relates to trials. None of us likes trials. And that yet your word says to count it all joy when we face these things. And so we pray for you, the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray for your help that you would change our hearts as we consider why and how we can face our trials with joy. Lord, we pray that this would happen by the activity of your Holy Spirit who guides us and strengthens us this morning. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into the actual text, I want to make a few comments about who James is because we may not recall uh, who this author is. The, the author of the letter is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, by the way, a little history about James. James is not known as one who was happy in following Jesus in his earthly ministry. In fact, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, when there was a crowd gathered around, in fact, Jesus was calling his disciples to himself, and crowds of people were gathered around, the family, uh, while a crowd was around him, the family pulled Jesus back into the house saying, hey, he's out of his mind. Don't look to Jesus. He's, he's out of his mind. It says that in Mark 3.21. You can look that up. Um, John 7 records for us another passage where it says this, for not even his brothers believed in him. So, so James is not somebody who by nature was inclined to follow Jesus. He wasn't immediately a firm believer, though he was gathered at the family table with Jesus and he had family discussions. He wasn't a believer. He didn't follow his brother. And so when he identifies himself, look at verse 1 again with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus Christ is the Lord. And I believe that. I believe in Jesus Christ. Once I didn't, and now I do. We know from Paul's letter that, that Jesus met with James after the resurrection. Maybe when he saw the nail scars on his hands and, and saw that Jesus was alive again, that, that God granted to James an actual vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. But something changed and James became quite the follower of Christ. God had things for James to do. And James at the outset is saying this, I believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, my life is his. I'm his servant. I do his bidding. I find my identity, not in myself. I identify as a servant of Jesus Christ. He has my allegiance. My obedience is due to him. And so he, he acknowledges that right from the start. Now he, he notes the, uh, the, the recipients of the letter in an interesting way. He says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, what is this about? Well, faithful Jewish Christians who had been living in the area near Jerusalem had experienced significant persecution such that they were pressed out. They had to leave their homes and their homeland. And so now they were scattered among many nations. And in so doing, God was bringing the new covenant picture into full reality. God's people were no longer directly associated with a geographic place, meaning Israel. God's people now had dispersed into many lands. 
And now this gospel, which began in Israel, was, was no longer isolated to Israel. God had pushed his people out. He had sent them into many lands. They were people on a mission. And so it's interesting. He says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's, he's saying something. You've been dispersed by God himself. There is a mission to which God has called you so that you might live. And then he addresses them. Um, as you read James, you'll see he, he refers to them, my dear brothers, my beloved brethren. He, he uses a multiple, uh, multiple nomenclature to, to just talk to them about his love for them. He, he writes with a pastor's heart because he knows these people have been through a lot. He knows they've been forced out of house and home and now they're in other lands Places where they don't necessarily want to be. But he's writing so that they can get a sense of how God wants to use them and how God wants their light to shine in their day-to-day lives. So here's how we're going to tackle these first four verses. We're going to talk about for a few minutes what trials do, what God does in accomplishing and bringing about trials. What does he accomplish in it? And then at the end, we're going to wrap back around and say, okay, with With all of that in view, how in the world do we count them all joy? Because I've never met a person in my life that says, I love trials. They they just make me happy. No, nobody likes trials. We all do everything that we possibly can, it seems, at times, to avoid trials. Nobody likes trials. So how is it that he calls us, God calls us, to count them all joy? That's how we'll and our time together. So, what, is, what do trials do? Number one, trials test the genuineness of our faith. Look with me again at verse 2 and 3. He says, Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So trials come... From the hand of God to test our faith. An untested faith is an unverified faith. It's easy for us to say that we love God and when things are rolling along easy, when when things are going well. But it's in the trial of our faith. It's in the furnace of affliction when our true faith is revealed. Our true trust is shown. God tests our faith to refine it. And to grow it, God tests us to refine us and to grow us so that we might, in greater ways, reflect Him. That we might look like Him. That we might respond like Him. I was following someone in traffic the other day, and my daughter Rachel was in the car with me. I was taking her to lunch, um, and uh, I I was following this car. And I've told you before, I tend to be... Um, I don't like getting places slowly, and so this person in front of me was um, forgetting where the gas pedal was, and so I was, I was um, exhorting them to move along. And, and Rachel has this way of, in a, she's a godly girl, and she just had this way of looking over at me and saying, Dad, that's all it took. I was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm not a patient man. And whether the trial that comes is small and momentary or whether it's years long, putting one foot in front of the other, God uses trials 
to grow us and to test our faith. Augustine, a a great theologian, I encourage you to read him, he says, trials come to prove us and improve us. They come to test our faith. They come to build something in our hearts. That's why God brings trials into our hearts. Because He doesn't want us to remain like infants. He wants us to move on into maturity. He doesn't want us sitting around drinking milk like infants do. He wants to move us on to the meat of the, the Word of God. And He wants us to grow into spiritual maturity. And the way He's designed to do it, and we don't like it, do we? He designs trials to move us along from infancy, from immaturity onto maturity. That's what trials are doing. They are testing our faith. He wants to grow us. The process, we can agree together, can we not, is often painful. It's hard. We don't like it. We'd rather be doing anything else than be walking through a trial. Yet... What it produces in our hearts is steadfastness. It produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness, the author of the Hebrews says. So God tests our faith. We see this throughout the scripture, by the way, don't we? In the wilderness, God tested the faith of the people of Israel. Back in the Old Testament, he tested the faith of the prophets. He tested Jonah's faith. In the New Testament, we see it as well. Um, John 6, I was just listening to John 6 the other day when when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 with with the loaves and the fish. He tested Philip. It says it right in John 6, 6. He says he tested Philip because he wanted to see how he would respond. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He tests us to refine us. God gave the Apostle Paul, what? A thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't become conceited and Paul pled with God earnestly please remove this thorn from me but God did not it was a means of testing it was a means of refining it was a means of God using something to cause his faith even the apostle Paul's faith needed to grow trials come to test our faith. The Apostle Peter says it this way. In this, he's, he's preceding this by talking about our salvation. He says, in this, your salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which, by the way, is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials come to test our faith. Why? So that God is more clearly seen and experienced in us and so that Christ is more clearly glorified in our lives. Now, we can talk about this all day long in this, you know, kind of heady kind of way, but, but the reality is you and I don't like the trials that we encounter. And I, and I want to say to, to you, if, if you're walking through a trial right now, and I say this with all humility because I know some of you are walking through a trial that's been a trial for perhaps a couple of years, perhaps a decade, perhaps almost all of your life, a trial 
a difficulty, an impediment that has hindered and in your understanding has caused great grief, God is at work, dear friends. God is at work. He is refining you. He is changing you. And though you and I don't like trials, this is what James is saying. We can count it all joy because God is at work. He is refining you. He is shaping you. He is at work. When you go out to your wood shop and you you gather some wood and you want to make something, as I did just the other day, I was uh, making an extension for one of the cabinets. Um, I, I thought I cut that board in the right way, but no, it was, it was too long, so I had to get out the sandpaper and sand it down because I had cut it too long. If you're that piece of wood and that sandpaper comes, you do not want that sandpaper to come, but it does what it needs to do so that it's fit for its purpose. God is at work. How do you grow your muscles strong? You see all these people flocking to Planet Fitness. What are they doing there? They're growing their muscles. How? By sitting around with the remote control? Is that how muscles grow? Like, hey, look at this. Woo, woo, it's happening. No, it's not happening. It happens as there's strain. As those muscles are being broken down, literally they will be rebuilt in a stronger way. Through the refining of our faith and the testing of our faith, our faith grows. God brings to us steadfastness. Excuse me. I want to be clear as well with one other point. Um, Sometimes we get confused about is God tempting me here? Um, no, God brings trials to refine our faith, but, but God is not the one who tempts us. In fact, James says this very clearly in verse 13. I'm just going to read it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there's a world of difference between testing which is intended to grow us, and temptation, which is intended by the devil to drag us down. I just want to make that distinction very clearly. God's intentions through trials are to grow us. They're not to tempt us into evil. He would never do that, because that is against his very nature. So trials come to test us. Number two, trials produce steadfastness, which mature and grow us. Look at verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now again, context is so important. James is writing with the heart of a pastor to these people. Again, they've lost their homes. They're in other places. They're bewildered by their circumstances. It would seem to them that their whole world has turned upside down. They're walking in a place that they don't know. And James is writing to them as a pastor. And he's saying, listen, here's something you can bank on. You can know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, what does steadfastness mean? I I looked it up. It says the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. 
the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. And that's specifically what trials are intended to do. They're intended to make us able to stand under the day of the fiery affliction. They're intended by God to remove the doubt about him and to put in its place a firm and unwavering conviction that he's God. I'm so grateful that we are walking through the New City Catechism. I, I, I hope that, that walking through this catechism just buffets your soul. When Chris was leading us through it this morning, I was just once again encouraged nothing comes to us except through the Father's hand. Now, I will confess to you there is great mystery in this life. There are things that come to us through the Father's hand that leave our heads scratching. That leave us wondering, wow, Lord, this, this tests the limits of my view of your goodness, doesn't it? There are times when adverse circumstances are so strong that we say to ourselves, how could God be good and bring this into my life? Am I right? Are you with me this morning? It's true. Fiery trials come. Our feet are held to the fire, and at times it seems like the flame is going to consume us. But it's designed to melt out the dross and the impurities of our heart and of our faith. And God intends to make you steadfast. He intends to make me steadfast through the passageway of trial. And at times we want to say to God, is there not another route that I can take, right? We're like, I don't particularly like this route. Lord, I'd rather walk the route that's, you know, comfortable and easy and and like a surgeon, he says, well, do you want to get well or do you want to remain in sickness? Do you want, do you want to grow into maturity, into Christ-likeness, or do you, do you think you've arrived? Because this is my prescription for how to get there. I'm going to grow you, and I'm going to grow you through trial. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. What does it mean to let steadfastness have its full effect? The effect of this writing is that, that James is saying, listen, one day at a time, one trial at a time, you just, you just allow the Lord to help you to be steadfast in that trial. And what you'll find over time is that your steadfastness grows so that brick by brick, so that near to the end of your life, you will find that you are complete. Now, none of us will be perfect until we see Christ. We know, that's, we know that's there. But what he intends to convey his here is a, a wholeness. That there's no cracks. That we are, we are together steadfast before the Lord. See, that's the target that, that James is aiming for. He's, he's saying, here's, here's how we view trials. We count them joy... Because of what they do. They make us perfect and complete. They mature us. They bring us into the fullness of God. God uses trials like nothing else to grow our faith. 
So I think it's right and appropriate that we, we take a moment to self-analyze, to take a look within. And so let me ask you, is there a trial in your life going on right now that, that is a burden to you? Do you have a trial and are you eager to get out of that trial? I'm walking through a trial as well. I'm eager to see this thing come to a conclusion. I, I don't see the end of it right now, but it's true. I want it done. I want it gone from my life. God is doing something in the midst of using this trial in my life. God is in the midst of doing something, dear friend, in this trial in your life. He is building you. He is shaping you. He is making you into the image of Christ through this trial. And he wants to remind you that he's with you in the middle of it. See, trials grow our faith in Christ because they loosen our grip on the things that we so quickly hold on to, which are not Christ. Like trials have a way of of giving us perspective, don't they? It was interesting. Last Monday night, I was watching, uh, some of you may have as well, watching Monday Night Football, and... And an injured Bills player goes down in an instant. We now know that that he had a cardiac arrest and it was an awful scene. But what was very encouraging to me was to see the response of the players as they were distraught. I, I can't attest for the faith of any of them. But what I saw was encouraging. Because what I saw in the field, what you saw in the field, was a testimony to the fact that even in our post-Christian American culture, we still have some kind of belief that prayer actually does something. Because both teams gathered on the field to pray. Both teams took a knee and for minutes on end prayed for their teammate who was in incredible peril at the moment. Suffering cardiac arrest. See, trials have a way of clarifying things that are important. What happened to the Bills-Bengals game? Done. You know, what was it, five minutes into the game? Trials have a way of clarifying what's real and what's totally unnecessary. When 9-11 happened, you remember this, right? The, The towers went down, our country was in great turmoil. What happened? baseball suspended, football suspended, all those kind of things. And I'm not, I'm not down on sports. I'm simply saying trials have a way of clarifying what's truly important. And the peripheral stuff, it goes to the side because it's not necessary. It's not where life is. God uses trials that way in your life. God uses trials that way in my life to help us loosen the grip on the stuff that we we are enamored with in this world so that we can more fully be enamored with Jesus Christ. So that we can see and savor the beauty of a Savior who loves us and who will never leave us or forsake us. So that we can treasure Him and pray to Him and walk with Him. Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, says this, In seasons of severe trial, the Christian has nothing on earth that he can trust to and is therefore compelled to cast himself on God alone. When no human deliverance can avail, he must simply and entirely trust himself to the providence and care of God. Happy is the storm that wrecks a man on such a rock. 
as this. Trials do this for us. They cast us onto the rock of Christ. They take us away from the things that are fleeting, the things that really don't matter. They take the flimsy substitutions of momentary pleasure that we cling to, and they bring us to Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our rock. That's what trials are intended by God to do. And now we go to how do we count it all joy? Because it's one thing to say these things. It's another thing to live it out. We can say, that's right, yeah, trials, they're, they're given by God to refine me. Yeah! Until we walk out of here and we remember all the challenges that we experience. So how is it that we count it all joy? I love how James is just real. He's not, he's not suggesting that we plaster some kind of uh, false smile on our face. That's not it at all. How do we count it joy when we face trials? Well, we can count it joy when we face trials because we know that God is for us and not against us, right? We can know that. How do we know that? We look to the cross. We know that God is for us and not against us because if he loved us to the extent that he would send his own beloved son to be sacrificed on a cross, if God loves us that much to do that, will he not also care for us in the middle of our trial? Will he not also walk with us in the middle of difficulty? We are by nature, is this not true? We are by nature so inclined to look at our circumstances and judge God and his faithfulness based on how our circumstances are going. Don't we do that all the time? I think this is what we do all the time. I know I do it all the time. And I'm asking God to change me. Lord, help me not to judge your faithfulness by my circumstances. Help me to judge your faithfulness by the measure of the cross. Because at the cross, the love of God for all people is on grand display. And so I'm asking God to change my heart when it comes to my circumstances. Or excuse me, my response to my circumstances. I'm asking God to help me to view his faithfulness, not through what's going on in my life, but through what he has already accomplished by forgiving my sins. We can count it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, because trials, we know this, they mature and they grow our faith. Trials produce a fruit that is not seen today. So so I I think of trials kind of like an investment. You know, if if you're a banker and you want to make investments, you have to actually empty your account and put it in some other account. You have to give something. There is investment that's made. And, and on the day that you make the trade, if you're doing the S&P 500, on the day that you make the trade, are you going to see this huge yield? No, it's an investment. It's a cost for a future reward. When we view trials as as God's means to to build us and shape us. And when we count them joy, we're we're saying to God, Lord, I don't like this. This is a cost to me, but I'm trusting that at a future day, there are going to be dividends that I'm going to see. I'm trusting that when you say it matures me and and produces steadfastness in me, that, that that's actually going to happen, that you're going to do that in my heart. So we can count it joy because of the fruit that comes 
through trials. It's the Lord who leads us through them and it's the Lord who sustains us through them. And He will never leave us and He will never forsake us and through all things we can count it joy. So here's where I, I really want to challenge your heart and challenge my heart. We have a choice to make today, dear friends. We can either count it all joy or we can count it all misery, right? We, we, we have a choice to make. We, have, we can count it joy or we can count it as misery. Notice, by the way, the words that he used. He says, count it all joy. Now, what does it mean to count? To count means to, to actually take stock, to, to consider, to ponder. So when you are counting up your coins, you are literally taking stock of what you have. That's what he's saying. Count it, consider it, look at it through the lens of faith. Count it all joy when you face these trials. Make an intentional choice. Some might say, you know, in the middle of a trial, you have to swallow hard, right? And say, Lord, please help me to have perspective. We've all gotten phone calls or text messages or emails or had conversations with people that have left us with the bottom of our gut dropping out. He's saying, take stock of that. Count it. Look at it. Don't just put on some happy smile. No. Count it. And count it joy because you know that God is with you, because you know God is for you, because you know that he's working something beautiful. Even though right now it seems miserable, God is at work. So you and I, we can count it all joy. Again, it's a choice. Let me talk about this for a minute. So if we, if we just take the perspective and say, I, I, I'm going to count it as misery. I hate trials. Well, you can do that, but But that would be terrible for you because to count it all misery is to yield yourself to the thought and the belief that God is not good. That's what we're saying when we grumble and when we complain about our circumstances. We're saying, Lord, if you were good, you would not put these circumstances in my life. And so when I grumble and complain, it's just a measure of my heart saying, Lord, you're not good. And I I believe we need to repent at times, I certainly need to repent of my grumbling and complaining against adverse circumstances. And I want to call us just to, in the spirit of, of the text to repent if the Lord leads you to that. If the Lord brings conviction of an area where you are, you are just regularly grumbling and complaining, uh, hear this, dear friends, that is against the Lord. You are making a statement. I am making a statement against the Lord when I yield myself to grumbling and complaining. And so we can, it's our choice, we can count it all misery, but but we're yielding ourselves and we're, we're robbing joy in God. We're diminishing the joy of our salvation and it will lead us to continue to grumble. However, on an upward note, or we can... Ask God to change our fundamental perspective on trials. We can swallow hard in the midst of a trial, like one I'm encountering. We can swallow hard and say, Lord, I'd love this to be gone, but I'm going to trust you. 
and I'm going to believe that you're actively working in the midst of this trial to bring about steadfastness of faith, helping me to be mature and complete in every way so that you are more fully seen in me. We can change our heart, change our perspective about the trial that we're in. At first, dear friends, this is a hard and painful road. It, it doesn't feel good. We want to complain when things don't go our way. But we can accept this, can't we? Because we know who stands behind the trial. A good and loving God. A good and loving God. Author and theologian Scott Hubbard used this analogy and I, I thought it was helpful. He says, to imagine that you're training for a marathon and you've hired an expert personal trainer who knows both your limits and the level of endurance that the race requires. Your trainer wakes you up at 4 a.m. to run. That sounds like a bunch of fun. He forces you to do uncomfortable stretches and squats and pushes you to the point of extreme pain. But though you never grow to necessarily like the training, you know that you're being better equipped for the race and that without this, you would not be equipped at all for the race. In other words, the process may not be fun, but it's gaining the desired result. I find that a helpful analogy because in like fashion, God has called you to a race to run. And on your own, you can't do it. On your own strength, you'd never be prepared for it. So, his, his spirit, our personal trainer, is with us in the midst of trial to prepare us, to stretch us, to get us up at 4 a.m. so that we might be prepared for the race that God has for us. So that we can run in a way that brings honor and pleasure and glory to himself. Do you know the name Horatio Spafford? Horatio Spafford was a godly man who knew something about encountering life's deep and challenging trials. In 1871, he and his wife lost their dear and only son. He was four years old to scarlet fever lost. He was a banker in that town and, and there was a great fire around that time and he lost much property. Not all of it, but much property. Two years later, he sent his wife and four precious dear daughters on a ship to England and he was planning to join them uh, as soon as he finished up his business. And while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, their ship collided with another ship and both ships sank. 226 people died in that collision, including all four of his precious girls, sparing only his wife. When he went over to England on a ship, the only way at that time to get there, that's when he wrote the following words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, 
let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now I ask you, how in the world could someone who's crossing the ocean where his four daughters just died, how in the world could he pen words like that? Except that he was able somehow by the grace of God, to count it all joy when experienced trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. And as we close, dear friends, at the start of this uh, journey through the book of James, which I pray will stir us and strengthen us and cause us to look ultimately to Christ once again with fresh eyes. I pray that even today that God would enable us to look at our trials with fresh eyes. Not, not counting it all misery, but in fact counting it all joy because we know He's for us and we know He's at work. Uh, I want to call us now to say let's put our eyes collectively together as a body on Jesus Christ. I'm not, I'm not calling you to ignore your trial. That's not what it, Let the, you know, the sea billows were still rolling. We're not talking about ignoring the trial. We're saying together as the people of God, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I'm going to count it joy because I know you're working something here. Even though this is painful, you're working something here. And like the person who is on the operating table, we can say to our master surgeon, the Lord, the Father Almighty, Lord, do your work. Use your scalpel. We know it's going to be painful, but we trust you because you're building something here. You're at work in our hearts and in our lives. Let me ask the worship team to come and Join me on the stage as I ask you to stand with me. We're going to pray, and then we're going to ask the Lord to remind us of His faithfulness to us in the midst of all these things. Can we pray together? Lord, we confess together that we don't think often like James is calling us to think. Father, when trials, when adverse circumstances come, uh, my heart is quick to grumble. My heart is quick to complain. I do not count it joy when they come. And so I'm asking that You would change my heart. And I'm asking that You would change the hearts of Your people that we might collectively together not put on some fake smile, no, but that we would count it 
all joy when we face trials because we know that you're at work, because we know that you're refining us into the image of Christ, because we know that you are producing something so that we can enter the race that you've called us to, not in our own strength, but in the strength of Almighty God. We don't want anyone else's strength, Lord. We need yours. And so even now, Lord, we we hold our hands wide open. And to the trials that we experience, we say, Lord, come change our hearts. Give us your perspective on these things. Grant us faith. And help us to walk day by day even though it may seem very uphill and hard. Help us to walk day by day knowing that you're leading us and that you will never fail us. You will never forsake us. You'll never let us go. Grant to us this faith, we pray and ask together in Jesus' name. And God's people together said, Amen. May it be so.